Chapter 13 of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter 13 Matthew Arnold. Part 2 culture and anarchy was succeeded in the following year by st paul and protestantism which is in a sense supplementary to culture and anarchy it is the application of the culture for which he pleaded and in which alone he saw salvation to dogmatic theology in speaking of hebraism he had especially identified it with puritanism in which he found its completest and most emphatic expression renan in his work on st paul had summed up his review of the great apostle's life and teachings by observing that paul is now coming to the end of his reign throughout his work renan had associated st paul indissolubly with protestantism and as he had a strong distaste for protestantism it was with much satisfaction that he could pronounce that st paul was coming to the end of his reign matthew arnold entered the arena in defence of st paul contending that what was coming to the end of its reign was the form of protestantism which had abused and misrepresented st paul not st paul himself who was on the contrary the most influential and vital force in true christianity the great object of the work was to dissociate the apostle from the puritanism which had claimed him for its great pundit and this arnold does by maintaining that the three essential terms of pauline theology are not as popular theology makes them namely calling justification sanctification but dying with christ resurrection from the dead growing into christ in these terms he rationalizes by insisting that they should be understood in a symbolic sense though he admits that st paul accepted the physical miracle of christ's resurrection and ascension as a part of the signs and wonders which accompanied christianity but it is not within the scope of this essay to discuss the contentions of this most unsatisfactory book which while it revolted the orthodox pleased no one wholly devoid of any even of literary charm without unction without humour a quality which is not perhaps to be expected on such a subject its attraction lies partly in its pathos and partly because it introduces an important group of arnold's writings i use the word pathos because of the sympathy which most people would feel with any one who would spring to arms in defence of the author of the epistles to the romans and the corinthians still we feel it would have been better to have let st paul alone we cannot deal with him as we do with plato we know we feel that he would have repudiated his champion the puritans understood him much better than arnold it is not fair and honest to resolve into mere symbol what to st paul was most certainly not symbol but fact st paul was not a poet the next work literature and dogma applies to christianity generally the same methods and the same aims it is in effect addressed as god and the bible was afterwards not to the man still striving to be content with the received theology 
neither is it intended for a frivolous upper class in their religious insensibility nor for a raw lower class in their religious insensibility nor for liberal secularists at home or abroad nor for catholics who are strangers or very nearly so to the bible it is meant for those who won by the modern spirit to habits of intellectual seriousness cannot receive what sets these habits at naught and will not try to force themselves to do so footnote preface to god and the bible this quotation and such others are still protected by copyright have been retained in this essay by kind permission of messrs macmillan and company and footnote arnold proposes to throw over every theological dogma based on supernaturalism and to resolve god into the manifestation of an eternal power not ourselves making for righteousness and perfection we are to regard all these texts and portions of scripture on which the teachings of what is called orthodox christianity are based as either symbolic or irrelevant and set stead only on those and a strange jumble of old and new testament he makes in selecting them which have spiritual significance such as trusting god but he would prefer to substitute for god the eternal righteousness tendeth to life as the whirlwind passes so is the wicked no more but the righteous is an everlasting foundation footnote proverbs ten twenty five learn of me that i am mild and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls footnote matthew eleven thirty nine to him that ordereth his conversation right shall be shown the salvation of god footnote psalm fifty verse twenty three and the like the quotations are as given in culture and anarchy christianity is the revelation because jesus christ came to reveal what righteousness really is to show that nothing will do except righteousness and that no other conception of righteousness will do except jesus christ's conception of it his method his secret and his temper his method being the setting up of a great unceasing inward movement of attention and verification in matters which are three-fourths of human life where to see true and to verify is not difficult the difficult thing is to care and to attend his secret being spiritual insight the discovery of the new man which after god is created in righteousness and true holiness his temper being his sweet reasonableness the fullness in him of humility grace and truth it is not to be denied that in this most unsatisfactory book there is much which is helpful and beautiful and eloquent perhaps the best criticism of it would be what one dr Kuf said of bacon's novum organum that a foolish man could not and a wise man would not have written it it certainly does not appeal to logic for if the supernatural elements in christianity are fictions and fables no other conclusion can be drawn than that those who reported them were either impostors or deluded fanatics and therefore as untrustworthy in what eclecticism accepts from them as in what it rejects 
it could scarcely fail to offend and irritate for it is disfigured by many passages more than bordering on flippancy many hundreds at least as intelligent and cultivated as its author and lastly it was somewhat premature what has grown up historically can only dissolve historically and arnold served the cause he had at heart much more effectually in pleading the cause in general culture religion is the poetry of morality it neither springs from the reason nor does it appeal to the reason its seat is in the imagination the affections and the conscience and if it is to be modified it is through their education that that modification must be effected it is in forgetting this that the great mistake of the author of such works as literature and dogma lies education must precede the work of demolition and reconstruction the education of the zeitgeist all demolition perhaps all reform before this must be premature literature and dogma was immediately succeeded by god and the bible which is partly a reply to those who had objected to the former work and partly an expansion of it again the key is in the preface this is a quote at the present moment two things about the christian religion must surely be clear to anybody with eyes in his head one is that men cannot do without it the other that they cannot do with it as it is End quote. again he essays to show the truth and necessity of christianity and also its charm for the heart mind and imagination of man even though the supernatural which is now its proper sanction should have to be given up he defends it against the rabid hostility of professor clifford who had called it that awful plague which has destroyed two civilizations and against such grotesquely anthropomorphic conceptions of it as found expression in the sermons of moody of moody and sankey fame in two chapters he deals with the question of the personality of god demolishing in the first the god of miracles in the second the god of metaphysics in the third dealing with the god of experience all very polemical and wearisome and to any one with a sense of humor most indecently grotesque in a fourth chapter the bible canon he defends what he had said about the insufficiency of the record on which what we know of jesus rests the last two chapters are occupied with an elaborate dissertation on the fourth gospel written with the object of showing that the fourth gospel was not written by st john and that though st john is not responsible for some of the sayings attributed to our lord he was the chief source of most of them it is with far more satisfaction that we turn to matthew arnold as a literary critic here he was at his best and could speak with an authority which none could dispute it is by this work and by his poetry that he will live but larger deductions perhaps must be made from the value of his work as a critic than from the value of his work as a poet matthew arnold's master and model in criticism as he owned and repeatedly averred was set well who occupies a rare a most distinguished a unique place in the history of criticism 
in arnold we english might have had our set well and that he does not fill a place in our own literature corresponding to the place filled by sac in french literature is one of the greatest misfortunes which have befallen english letters but unhappily the necessity for earning a livelihood in his professional calling the labor and time expended on his official reports on educational questions and above all the dissipation of his energy in his various contributions to theology social questions and politics effectually prevented this in such a life concentration was impossible the varied extensive catholic learning the knowledge requisite for the equipment of a great critic he had no time to acquire nor had he leisure to digest and meditate so that all his work was more or less occasional and fragmentary and some of it very superficial and to himself as he often said most unsatisfactory Sepuev dedicated his whole life his whole energy to literary criticism to preparation to production when in the maturity of his powers and of his attainments the composition of one of the causeries de lundi occupied him exactly the whole of six days every week i never he wrote have a holiday on monday towards noon i lift up my head and breathe for about an hour after that the wicket shuts again and i am in my prison cell for seven days and he is represented by upwards of forty volumes octavo two volumes would easily contain all that matthew arnold has left as a critic before discussing his indebtedness to set Boeuf and his general characteristics as a critic, let me briefly review his chief critical essays. First would come the preface to the poems of 1853, in which he explains why he excluded Empatocles on Etna from the poems which he wished to preserve, and in which he discusses the materials proper for sound poetry and the characteristics of the grand style. Then the preface to Marope, in which he explains and justifies the canons of Greek tragedy and pleads the cause of classicism as opposed to romanticism. Next comes one of his chief and most characteristic works, indeed his masterpiece of criticism, namely the essays of criticism published in eighteen sixty five and which may be regarded as a connecting link between his writings dealing with social criticism and those dealing with literary subjects we may note especially its inimitable preface its admirable chapters on the function of criticism at the present time and literary influence of academies the sympathetic insight which distinguishes the almost epoch-making critiques on heine on jubert and on marcus aurelius the finely discriminating perception of the essential differences between pagan and religious sentiment displayed on the essay on that subject next would come the lectures on translating homer with their masterly analysis of the essential attributes of the genius which gave us the iliad and the odyssey and the light thrown on the true principles of translation next come the lectures on the study of celtic literature the most brilliant the least satisfactory of all his critical writings the least satisfactory because without having any pretension to being a celtic scholar 
without in fact being able to construe a sentence of the original languages he generalized not only on the spirit and tone but on the style of the celtic writers because having no critical knowledge of celtic literature he hopelessly jumbled up what was genuine and spurious what was ancient and modern and sometimes attributed exclusively to the celts what were not their exclusively peculiar characteristics the most brilliant because speaking generally and broadly he did bring out some of the differentiating characteristics of the three racial elements which enter into the british constitution temper and genius and consequently into the english literature and because the lectures are full of the finest critical insight full of precious suggesting full of rare and sound instruction exquisitely felicious in expression masterpieces of style among his miscellaneous critical essays prominence must be given to the introduction to mr humphrey ward's british poets which being a review of the history and evolution of british poetry is the most comprehensive of his critical essays to his review of mr stopford brooks primer with its somewhat inadequate appreciation of shakespeare who is called to account on the score of style and deficiency as an artist to his essay on a french critic on milton with its strange insensibility to the moral greatness of the mighty puritan to the essay on shelley in which surely justice is not done in very important respects to shelley's genius and work in the admirable essay on wordsworth we are surprised at the critic's indifference to wordsworth's philosophy and philosophical poems in the essays on gray on keats on byron slight as they are we see arnold at his very best set Boeve, as we have seen was arnold's master and model as a critic let us see how in the memoir which matthew arnold wrote of his master in the encyclopedia britannica he says of him when he began his work as a critic quote, something of fervor enthusiasm poetry he may have lost but he had become a perfect critic a critic of measure not exuberant of the center not provincial of keen industry and curiosity with truth the word engraved in english on his seal for his motto moreover with gay and amiable temper his manner as good as his matter the critique souriant as in charles monsalet's dedication to him he is called End quote. to become such a critic was matthew arnold's aim as we have already seen nature and education must have so tempered him so led him instinctively to that ideal long before he came into contact with set Boeve's writings that he must have met the influence of his master more than halfway we have seen how essentially greek he was how penetrated by the influence of greek how attracted to what was in the true sense classical in greek in latin in french in german in english balance measure sobriety form revolted by what was amorphous extravagant coarse with a genius delicate and finely touched rather than robust and vigorous with a tendency to reduce and submit everything to the standards and touchstones of a lucid intelligence 
now it is doing the french and setbuev was preeminently and essentially a frenchman no injustice to say that though on such qualities and on such a temper is based the diathesis of a consummate critic yet that critic will have his limitations and they will be serious consummate he may be but it will be within a certain sphere the moment he is confronted say with such rude crude elemental forces as walt whitman or such flights as shakespeare's in lear nay with what is most characteristic of the hebrew prophets of pindar even of our own milton his touchstones and standards are apt to fail him and this is strikingly true of set Buev. it would certainly be too hard on him to say unreservedly that his insight and success as a critic are in an inverse ratio to the greatness of the subjects and authors whom he judges but it is assuredly in a certain degree true virgil he can measure and understand but not pindar sophocles but not aeschylus cowper but not milton there was much and very much revealed to hazlitt and lamb who were most certainly not of the centre which was not revealed to Setbuev and Matthew Arnold. It is a provoking and perplexing truth in relation to criticism that none but an enthusiast can understand an enthusiast, and of all critics an enthusiast is the worst. Matthew Arnold's range of sympathy and insight was wider than Setbuev's, but we cannot but feel that, in somewhat timid deference to his master he deliberately confined them but how great how salutary were his services to criticism he taught it measure sobriety lucidity precision he derived his canons from the habitual discriminating and sympathetic study of all that was most excellent in the literature of ancient greece and rome of modern italy of england of france of germany he may from constitution and temper have been limited in some of the directions indicated but he was all but infallible in what he actually pronounced his judgment was a very ethereal spear in the detection of what was spurious and unsound look for example at the masterly way in which he separates the dross from the gold in the work of byron of burns and of macpherson's ossian how he detects the false notes in the roman poets and in our own poets of the eighteenth century how admirably in dealing with dryden he distinguishes between rhetoric and poetry with what piercing truth he explains the essential differences between poetry of the first order and poetry of the second order the differences which separate chaucer from homer and dryden from wordsworth how sound and illuminating is his analysis of what constitutes excellence in style his insistence on the illustration of evolution and architecture in a poem on the successful subdual of the details to the total impression how true and how sound his conception of the aim and functions of true great poetry the application of ideas to life what false conceptions and standards do such a theory sweep away how noble is this conception of the future of poetry of what it has the power to effect 
Following is a quote from the introduction to Ward's English Poets. The future of poetry is immense, because in poetry, where it is worthy of its high destinies, our race, as time goes on, will find an ever surer and surer stay. There is not a creed which is not shaken, not an accredited dogma which is not shown to be questionable, not a received tradition which does not threaten to dissolve. Our religion has materialized itself in the fact, in the supposed fact. It has attached its emotion to the fact, and now the fact is failing it. But for poetry the idea is everything. The rest is a world of illusion, of divine illusion. Poetry attaches its emotion to the idea. The idea is the fact. The strongest part of our religion today is its unconscious poetry. End of quotation. Great is our debt to Matthew Arnold. As a man, we think of him as he pictured one of his own heroes, Marcus Aurelius. Quote, Wise, just, self-governed, tender, thankful, blameless. Yet with all this agitated, stretching out his arms for something beyond. Tendententque manus ripe alterios amore. End quote. And this is the image faithfully reflected in his writings. But to those who are still on this side of the bank, he left the example of a pure and strenuous life, faithfully and disinterestedly devoted to noble purposes, to lending a helping hand to those who, like himself, needed stays and guidance, such as the old creeds and the old traditions could no longer give to striving to recall a gross and sensual people to worthier standards of taste, of conduct, of aspiration, to vindicating and interpreting the true functions, the divine mission of poetry, to enriching that poetry with many a gem, exquisite alike in quality and in conscientious perfection of workmanship, to recalling criticism to a proper sense of its duties and responsibilities, and by furnishing it with models of the ends at which it should aim, of the criteria and methods which it should employ, of the tone, of the accent, of the form in which it may most appropriately and effectually express itself. End of chapter 13 Matthew Arnold, Part 2